0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of IRI Growth Insights. Today, I'm joined by Larry Levin, Executive Vice President, Market and Shopper Intelligence here at IRI for our fifth podcast, Larry. Um, today, we are talking about product innovation through a new product pace setter lens. Thanks for joining me, Larry.
1: Thanks, Joan. Always great to uh, be here. I can't believe we're on our fifth one. And Beautiful morning in Southern California, and almost happy summer to everybody.
0: Yeah. So, Larry, um, we are talking about new products, and part of this, part of the impetus for today's call is that you and I just um, recorded the new product Paysetters webinar late last week. And I want to say happy anniversary to you because you have been working on Paysetters for 10 years. That's awesome. Congratulations. Um, So, we, we don't necessarily have to talk about setters as a report because we just gave the webinar and people can download that webinar at iriworldwide.com. Um, but I do want to talk about setters or product innovation kind of through that lens because there's so much out there and you've been tracking this for so long. So I just want to start with can you, you know, what is it that you like most about pace setters and tracking all this innovation?
1: Well, first, I've personally always been a new product innovation geek. I, I love new products, whether it's the latest technology that you find in the Apple store or the latest cars or, uh, or or the great innovations that we see in CPG. So it's always been a passion. I've been lucky in 40 years of my career, I've worked on some of the most fun, innovative products from the development of Lexus to a new 911 to all the work that we do in New Product Paysetter. So it's, I think it's in my blood for new products. And what I, what I like most about it is it's obviously a great distinction to be named a New Product Pacesetter. And I always tell clients, when you have a New Product Pacesetter, you should tell the world about it because it's a feather to your innovation platform. It's a great selling story. It's just something to really be proud of. And so I think it's just really fun to see the newest of the new and walk down the aisles of the store. And for those of you who were part of that team to get it to the market, say, I worked on that from its inception to its birth. Now it's alive in store and and it's so rewarding. And you know what? It's also rewarding to find a failure because one of the things that we know is 50% of products fail in test. And so when you're developing a product and it's not going to hit the parameters you want before it gets out, that's actually a success. And one of my favorite stories around that is happened in the automotive industry. And I, I know that this is a CPG audience, but I'm sure most of us love cars. And my team at Market Facts was doing some work for Nissan and a new Sentra. And the car was developed in Japan, came into Los Angeles. We did a big product study with 300 consumers in the LA area testing Sentra and its competitors. And the car absolutely bombed. It came nowhere close to meeting the hurdles Nissan needed. But the design team in Japan redid the Sentra, created a whole new effect, interior and exterior styling, and got that product, tested again, and it ended up maintaining the hallmarks it needed. So I always think it's important to think about the seven sins of innovation, and one of them is getting the research right, and the research right to get the product right. If you find a failure in test, that's a success.
0: That's interesting because in corporate America, we often hear fail fast, and you will be rewarded for failure, which frankly, I have a really hard time grasping, but you just said something that I haven't heard, and that is It's not necessarily a complete failure. There might be some elements in there that just need to be retooled, repackaged, um, different attributes called forward, or maybe some attributes added that people would find more valuable. And that's, you know, when I think of failure, it's like, okay, that's done. Wipe the board clean and start over. But what you're telling me is that's really not the case. That's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... There's always learnings, and and I remember being at a conference with one of the guys from Tyson, and and the mantra wasn't fail fast, it was fail forward, and learn learn from your mistakes. Like we've all known as kids, learn from your mistakes, and so there Speak for are, yourself. Well, I mean, other than you, but <laughs> there are so many opportunities to learn, and it's not a failure when a product fails in test. It's an opportunity to learn and move forward because imagine what the mistake would cost if you went to market.
0: Right. But again, I think, and we talked about this, and I think it was our first podcast together, that there's got to be some frustration for you watching these same mistakes happen again and again and again, right?
1: Yeah, but I'm hoping that as some of these mistakes happen, that people are better at refining their expectations, whether it's, how am I going to get the trial I need? Am I going to get the distribution right? Am I really going to spend the money in advertising and marketing that I need to spend in order to build the awareness, get the top of the funnel going to lead to consideration, to lead to purchase? Right. So I think you know there's a, there's a lot to be learned. But I feel very fortunate to have had an opportunity to be one of the co-spokespeople for arguably the pinnacle of thought leadership in in the CPG industry: new product pay setters.
0: Yeah, I mean, everybody
1: I mean, looks forward to it. Yeah, every year. I,
0: it's interesting because in early early in my career, I did um, I had a newsletter called Rollout where I did write about new products, um, and I actually had a magazine um, that I was the editor of called New Products Magazine. So like you, I have that shared background, that shared passion for all these new products. Um, So I think that both of us can agree that we've seen some perennial favorites, if you will, of different types of products that just continue to do really well year after year. I'm thinking of things like energy drinks, um, certainly like snack products. Are there others that you see, and kind of like why? Why do they keep bubbling up year after year?
1: Well, let me first back up for one second. I, I think it's really important because we get—I get this question a lot. I know you get this question a lot. What percent of total sales come from new product innovation? And the history that I've—I've I've been tracking suggests that about three to five percent of total CPG dollars come from new product innovation, but. Not surprisingly, it drives disproportionate year-on-year contribution to growth. And what I really love about that stat is there are companies that will do that 3 to 5%, but I've worked closely with other companies, major multinationals, that will say, you know what, I want 9 to 15% of my revenue coming from new products. And I love that mantra because they're recognizing that these new products are going to create the buzz. They're going to create the interest in the categories that they play in and giving consumers a new experience. And especially in today's COVID environment, people are looking for new experiences. So, you know, you, you asked me about, you know, what are some of the perennial favorites, you know, energy drinks, snacking, personal care, et cetera. Um, I think that energy drinks are always out there as a way to, to lift excitement in the convenience store channel. They provide a great complement to somebody who's looking to come in and get a quote a, a quick boost. And the last couple of years, energy drinks have contri- have grown almost ten percent in the C store channel. They they beverages in particular at C store are are rocking it. Yeah, and eight, eight out are- of our
0: ten pace setters this year or for twenty nineteen. Our beverages. It's crazy. Yeah,
1: and, and as we saw with our rising stars, there's quite a few coming down the pike there, too. So energy drinks are just always at the forefront to meet a consumer need. Our number one pace setter on the food and beverage side was Bang. And if you add what it did in C Stores, the number two C Store perf- performer and the number one food and beverage performer in C Store, it was over a billion dollars. That's a heck of a bang with yeah. no marketing other than social media. Well, I mean, you just think about that phenomenon, that that built a groundswell of excitement with a very targeted consumer. Um, and so energy drinks are big. Snacking, you know, we know that over the last seven to 10 years, Americans have thrived on snacking. That's what led me to my cafeteria term, you know, the car's a dining room table. My partner Sally Lyons Wyatt regularly is talking to the market about what's happening in snacking. And snacking is one of those areas that we're seeing growing in COVID-19 because people are home more, they need; they might wanna graze throughout the day. Um, and so I think that snacking innovation has answered a lot of bells, whether it's about the convenience and portability of snacking, or it's about good snacking. I, I can remember over the few years, products like Belvita, products like uh, Nature Valley, uh, protein. I remember when that was a paste probably six, seven years ago. And the word protein was the name of the product. I mean, when did an attribute become the name of a product? Right. Nature Valley protein. And protein was, you know, it had a font size that was probably as big as Nature Valley when General Mills brought that to the market. Pet products, you know, again, always win with the U.S. and global passion to have dogs and cats and any kind of pet you might want to have at home. But I think what's important there is the innovation has really grown in a natural and organic and all-in healthy environment and that consumers are willing to pay more because their pets are their family. Their pets are not an it that's in my family. Their pets are an extension of their human lives.
0: Yeah, I think that that's pretty much been building – you know, for at least the past like 15 years, 10 or 15 years where pets are true family members, they get insurance and medical, and now it's, well, it's always been nutrition, comfort as well. So you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah, I and mean, it, been, it, even it's personal,
0: like, Even personal care products too, I've seen kind of go, um, you know, maybe a little bit more niche but certainly more natural. Um technology certainly plays a role. There's always something new to talk about in personal care. Um, do you have do you have like a, a favorite of the past couple of years? Like some products that you've really adopted as as your go-tos?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, even from a personal care standpoint, whitening strips. Ah, oh, right. You know, I think whitening strips are one of the great at-home do-it-yourself inventions. And I know, Joan, you and I spent a lot of time talking about the migration from personal personal services at a professional office to doing it at home. Especially and, now,
0: especially, especially
1: now, yeah. Especially now, but when when P&G and Colgate were able to innovate with white strips in their lineups, that provided a whole new avenue for people who might want to whiten their teeth, but couldn't afford to go to a dentist, couldn't afford the trays, didn't have the time for it. A half an hour walking around or reading or doing whatever, and you've whitened your teeth. Mm -hmm. That's one of the greatest personal care innovations. I think the other thing, and and it's not really personal care as much as it's home care, but the multifunctional products that are coming out now, whether it's Tide and Febreze or... um, Uh, you know, Clorox and and some of its glad products with, with an additive. Um, I think it's showing consumers that they can extend their dollars by dual functioning. And the manufacturers have responded by understanding that consumers are stretching their dollars. So I'm going to give you a product that has a built in fabric softener Mm -hmm. or has a mouthwash built into the toothpaste so that you kill two birds with one stone. And especially now, With 40% of the people in an economic segmentation we have being downtrodden and cautious and worried, being able to extend the value of a product is a home run with today's consumer.
0: Yep. And as as you mentioned, you know, not only are we still in um, COVID-19, we're in a pandemic. So people are paying far more attention to their home cleaning. Um, But you're right. It's it's. you know we're we're in an economic situation and a health situation so multi surface cleaners in particular are are huge and have been but there people are paying a lot more attention to them now
1: um, yeah you know, it's interesting too because this covid-19 environment has given manufacturers an opportunity to not just rely on new products but rely on new packaging to drive consumer demand and I know you and I have talked about the fascination I have with lay down flat bags in the Food Channel, where General Mills has added three pound bags of tricks and Lucky Charms and Post Cereals done that the same with some of its, its brands. I think it really pays homage to the fact that consumers are in a stock up mode and they could buy a three pound bag of cereal that's going to last them a long time. And by the way, that could be a benefit for Georgia Pacific you know, or or any other Tupperware, rubber, you know, food storage because somebody like that who's buying a three-pound bag might need to buy storage products to keep this, the product fresh because the bag may not keep it fresh all the time. But I think it's interesting how there's been innovation there. And then the other side of the innovation, going from a small pack size, we do a lot with clients like uh, GSK Pfizer and... In order to help people who can't afford maybe to buy a big bottle of uh advil uh g s k Pfizer um, has developed you know been selling a lot of the you know eight to ten capsule packs mm-hmm. because people want to have it on hand and it's affordable as opposed to buying a big bottle so I think Manufacturers have really done a nice job of responding. And even the retailers have with their product with their um private label product assortment as well.
0: Right. Gearing up, I mean, there's, you know, when we went through the last recession, um, private label wasn't nearly as developed as it is now. And so I think that retailers are in a much better position kind of leverage what they've already built up um, in terms of tiers. In terms of like new opportunities, like we're seeing things like plant-based meats, um, even CBD products entering some of the store brand um, arenas. So it is it's, it is an interesting time for innovation, even in, it, even in private label. Because shoppers are turning more towards private label now that we're in a recession.
1: Right. I, w- I was going to say the research that you and I have been captaining with KK DeVay. Um, does show that one out of five consumers is either looking for private label because they can't afford the national brand or switch to private label because national brand wasn't available. Mm -hmm. These are opportunities or albatrosses that you've got to either expand or defend depending upon which side of the ledger you're on.
0: So Larry, a a couple minutes ago, you were talking about some of our segmentation that we've done um, in terms of who our shoppers are. But when it comes to New product pace setters, I've heard you go back to the early avid adopters pretty frequently. But when we look at that group of people, it's a pretty small group, like 8% of the population are considered, you know, consider themselves to be avid early adopters. So who are these, these people and why do they matter so much to new product manufacturers?
1: Yeah, you know, the avid early adopters is a kind of an offshoot of some tracking that you and I have been doing now for a few years about new product adoption. And these are people who say they got to be the first on the block to buy, whether it's the latest food, the latest beverage, the latest healthcare, the latest pet care, latest uh, home cleaning product. You know, if, If they say four out of six of key CPG categories that we look at on a regular basis, they become... Avid early adopters, yes, they're only eight percent of the population, but they provide a very important view of new products and how they, and how they adopt because they are they, they want to be first on the block, and then when they're first on the block, they want to be the mouthpiece to tell you and everybody how they feel about the products. And, and one of my favorite ones was Halo Top ice cream, which was one of our pace setters a couple of years ago, and Halo Top was one of those products that didn't have a lot of direct marketing dollars. There wasn't TV, there wasn't radio, there wasn't print, but it was a lot of um, earned media, like through Instagram and and Twitter and others. And when influencers said something about wanting the product, people jumped on top of it. These are those avid early adopters coming to life, and they tend to be younger. They tend to be a little bit more affluent. They have at least in the pre-COVID environment, a little bit more money to take an opportunity, not a risk with a brand new product. I, I think it's really important for manufacturers to understand how their products are, are resonating with an avid early adopter, because you could do concept work with a general sample and then you can screen for these incremental this incremental sample of avid early adopters. And I've seen it come to life in my automotive world again. Um, years ago, I did work for Infinity on the J30, and you've got to be at least 35 years old probably to even know what the J30 was, but it was a very innovative development at the time for Infinity Nissan's luxury division. And the research suggested that this car was not going to work out real well initially, but when we ran the data by early adopters, we saw... Parts of this car come to life because the early adopter was able to gravitate towards the bubble like styling. They saw some things in the interior that really drove them. And so Nissan latched onto these avid early adopters and said, you know what, we're going to let this car kind of do a slow build. And and I've seen a slow build work well in CPG. One of my favorite pace setters of all time was Chibani. When Chibani hit the market, it was at 10%. Multi or FDMX, as we used to call it in the day, food, drug, mass channels, 10%. But it drove $47 million in its first year. And then when it got beyond its pace setter threshold of 30% distribution, it got $150 million in sales. And the gargantuan brand known as Chibani was really born and on the map. But Shabani spent $275,000 in advertising. It was word of mouth. That was before the internet really took off. So this was word of mouth. It was unique marketing and obviously some great positioning. And I think, Joan, you've heard me say that I I compare Shabani mania with Beatle mania. The Beatles started in anonymity in in the Cavern Club in Liverpool, went out to uh, Hamburg. But they didn't hit the ground until... The, you know, till things really kicked off in Europe and then obviously United States and the rest is musical and yogurt history, as we say.
0: <laughs> Rock on, Shabani. Um, so, there's a couple things that you just brought up and I want to stick with with innovation and these avid early adopters because there's no category, there's no area that's like particularly ripe for innovation with these people. So, how do you know How do you know that your product, your innovation is is going to be attractive to an avid early adopter?
1: Well, that's where the research comes in. I I think what you do is you do research among the general market or whatever your target market might be, and then you boost it with further knowledge about these classified early adopters. And so you start to say, in a general market view, this product seems to generate x percent of interest but when you overlay an avid early adopter that interest either wanes or or drives significantly north and so you really want to get an idea of how it's going to play out with them and then when you think about as you're further along the lines and who are these early who do you think the early adopter is going to be you start to profile them with things like experian coding And you can overlay products like IRI Shopper Sites as a way to target with targeted communication to these folks who might best replicate what an avid early adopter is going to look like for this product with the right messaging and the right benefits so that you give me a reason to believe. That's what it's about, giving me a reason to believe so that I have that passion for being first on the block.
0: So aside from, you know, maybe some empathetic messages right now, where do you see opportunities for innovation? Um, I mean, I think that we're in a really interesting place in time right now. People, more of the food dollars at home. Um, people have a lot of insecurity, both with their personal health and their financial health. That has to be that has to point to some opportunities.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think first and foremost, believe it or not, premiumization still plays. And if I use the history, and I know you and I and KK talk about this a lot, if we and Sheila, if we look back at what we saw at the last recession, there was a lot of premiumization. Chibani was just coming to the market, PF Chang's. We have to remember value for the money doesn't mean cheap. Value for the money means make my life better. And if I'm a manufacturer and I have an opportunity to create premium products because people are not going to go out to restaurants as much or they may not necessarily go to their salon for manicure or or hair coloring or their dental office for the teeth whitening I talked about before, I think this is an opportunity to continue to position and reinvent premiumization because when you when you think about what a product might cost relative to its competitive set in store, it might be 20, 30% more. But if I'm trading my dollars from a professional salon or a dentist or doctor's office, I might be saving 70%. And so I think, I I think premiumization could play. Multi-serve I think is going to be really important. um, As we have people struggling, you and I talk all the time about the fact that unemployment rates are at astronomically high Points and while it might gravitate a little bit as businesses open up, we still have a lot of people that are not working or they're coming back underemployed. They're not making as much as they did, and so multi serve is going to become important. And, and I saw that, you know, in twenty ten with Pf Changs with Bertolli, lots of products that really created a need to say this this package can last you three or four meals. Mm-hmm. And I think that that becomes an area I think, um, as we said before, package innovation becomes really critical because as a leader on your supply chain, if you understand where the consumer needs are, uh, you may have the opportunity to recalibrate your your supply line and create these bigger pack sizes we talked about or even the smaller ones. Knowing your consumer is more important than ever. And being able to respond in a way that's going to meet the consumer need has got to be job one.
0: So, and that kind of takes me into, you know, that sense of discovery because, you know, with new products pre-COVID, a lot of people were discovering them in store. We had sampling programs, which are gone. People are spending less time in the store. Um, People are trying to go, you know, the most direct route to get their purchases and get out So we're we're losing that that cool opportunity for discovery in the store. How now, like moving forward, are would you recommend that companies connect with their shoppers?
1: Yeah, I think this makes digital outreach more important than ever uh, because consumers have told us that, as you said, they want to spend less time in store. They are avoiding aisles that they don't want to go on because they do not want to collide with a potential covid carrier and so they're doing whatever they can so i think displays become important because people are not going to go on that treasure chest or that treasure hunt as i'm walking from one aisle to another maybe a display hits my mind I, I was just telling somebody else earlier today i was at ralph's in calabasas the other day outside los angeles and um i i was taken by the fact that pepperidge farm had shippers in front of every checkout counter to promote Pepperidge snacks. So Campbell Snacking has done a phenomenal job of catching that final moment of opportunity as I'm in line featuring Pepperidge snacks from register one to register 10. It was was really creative. And I've never seen freestanding shippers right in front of the checkout. Now, on one hand, I thought it was really cool. On another hand, I thought, wow, if the store is crowded, this is just going to make it more crowded. And even though we've got to keep our six-foot diff- distance, it still created another obstacle uh, that affects the you know ingress, egress within the that part of the store, especially at checkout. But it was a very creative way for Pepperidge to be able to leverage some of its products.
0: Well, and I imagine because, you know, during this time, we've also seen e-commerce really spike. Um particularly click and collect, but also home delivery. So I would anticipate that a lot of these companies are taking some of the discovery or they should be taking some of this discovery online and making recommendations, trying to insert themselves in other purchases um, as best they can.
1: Yeah, certainly one of the most important areas for the confections industry, which I work very closely with, is what are we going to do to drive impulse purchasing? i.e. What, what Pepperidge is doing. But as you think about the advent of click and collect and more and more consumers adopting and feeling like that's going to be their new way of shopping in this quote-unquote new normal, um, we need things at the quote e-commerce checkout that emulate the final moment of opportunity. It's, you know, you, on, you, line, you, you, right? you want that Reese's peanut butter cup at the last second that I normally would have snatched out of the line when I'm getting ready to pay. So, it's going to be really important for certain industries to get that final opportunity that would exist when they're walking in front of the checkout counter.
0: So, I want even,
1: even in the, one thing too is how much impulse purchasing is opportunity lost at these self-checkout areas. Because I, you know, a sample of a couple stores that I've been in, but I don't remember seeing a lot of impulse products in front of the self checkout area.
0: They're coming. And, and in fact, I, I have seen stores kind of pivot almost to that same model that you see at like a, a TJ Maxx or a, um, you know, maybe even it's, is it Home Depot? Like some of those stores where you are almost in a corral, um at yeah. to self check, particularly with um, social distancing. It's like a way of keeping people separate. So clever yeah. stores have really kind of ramped that up like, hey, you've got to pass this way anyway, or you might have to wait here um, for access. So I can see that that's, that is happening. Well, Larry, once again, um, we've whipped through another half hour plus. Um, so I want to thank you for your insights and your, your 10 years with pace setters. Um, Here's to several more. And um, I'll talk with you soon.
1: Sounds great, Joan. Always good to catch up.
0: Thank you for listening. Please visit iriworldwide.com to view the IRI COVID-19 dashboard and insights portal, where you'll have access to daily updates, in-depth reports, as well as observations and implications for the CPG retail industry. Please become a subscriber of IRI Growth Insights and let us know what you want to learn more about. We'll serve it up in a future IRI Growth Insights episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review IRI Growth Insights. Also, visit us on the web at iriworldwide.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.